Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 5th of February, 2013, and Carol Black has returned. Carol, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks for having me back. Carol was previously a guest on this show, was also um, a keynote for the Global Education Conference, and um, really appreciate, in particular, the messages that you have to give and your willingness to talk about them, and we're going to have fun tonight drilling down on that. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks go to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for their support. Coming up, we have so much fun this year, uh, starting on March 28th, the School Leadership Summit. That's at schoolleadershipsummit.com. This is a virtual conference, a highly inclusive event. Um, it's all about um, the use of Web 2.0 and school leadership issues. And it is a peer-to-peer -peer development conference, so all of the presenters will be actual practitioners, and you're going to really enjoy it. Also coming up, if you're going to the ISTE conference, we do this thing called ISTE Unplugged. It's all the community activities around that are fringe around the conference, including our all-day unconference, which we're calling Hack Education this year, and Audrey Waters is going to co-chair that event. We're going to have a homeschool conference in May, a worldwide homeschool conference that should be a lot of fun with Pat Ferenga, uh, who wrote a, co wrote a book with John Holt on homeschooling. And then we're doing a big STEM X, that STEM plus everything else worldwide conference, uh, a gaming and education conference, a Future of Museums conference, plus our normal Future of Libraries conference and the Global Education Conference. So it should be busy. Hope you can join us. They're all free. Everything's recorded. Um, hundreds and hundreds of sessions by other fun people. And if you've never presented before, this is a great way to dip your toes in. Coming up on the Future of Education, Thursday, Laura Grace Walden is going to give us lessons from free range learning. So you knew there was homeschooling. You knew there was unschooling. Now, there's, now you're going to learn about free range learning. Richard Millington was scheduled for today. We rescheduled for next week. It's an early in the day show. He's going to talk about his book on managing social communities. Howard Rheingold and their team will talk about uh, pedagogy on the 12th. I think I'm missing something on the 5th, but I'll come back to that. Michael Fullen, which is new, is going to talk about education reform and the change process. Alan November is also new on who owns the learning. And I love this title. And I think it's going to wrap very nicely into some of the things we talk about tonight. Uh, Paul Thomas is going to talk about his book, Poverty and the Corporate Takeover of Education. Maurice Gibbons on self-directed learning. Kevin Dykes on student voice. Lots and lots of fun. Hopefully something there that's going to be of interest to you. Uh, new on this list, April 9th, Madeline Levine on Teach Your Children Well. Oh, and two Book Club 2.0 events. I've set this up as a wiki. It's bookclub20.com. If you're going to hold a virtual book club, you can list it there. I'm holding a couple coming up in the next couple months. One on Seymour Papert's Mindstorms, misspelled there, huh? and uh, John Dewey's Experience in Education. And so please go to bookclub20.com and you'll find out all about that. If you've missed any of our previous shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form in an MP3. Stephen Bezruchka, you know, I've just had a spelling issue today. <laughs> Stephen was on the show and uh, was just delightful talking about uh, and different ways of looking at poverty and its impact. And I think we're going to discuss that tonight. Uh, in fact, I hope that we are. 
So this is when you can, those of you who are in the live audience can let us know where you're listening from. Click on the star to the left of the map. Click twice and then click on map. And feel free to shout out in the chat. Let us know time, temperature, and the like. I'm in lovely Park City, Utah, where snow's been melting like crazy in warm, gorgeous days. Carol, I can't remember where you call home. Are you somewhere you can tell us about? I'm in Southern California right now. Um, we spend part of our time in the Rocky Mountains as well, but uh, we have escaped and uh, and headed for California. <laughs> Fun. Wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad that you're taking the time, and we appreciate it. Okay, there's a Mighty Bell space for this event. Mighty Bell is this content and curation Web 2.0 space that Gina Bianchini has created. Gina was the co-founder of Ning. And I consulted for her when she was doing Ning on education. I'm consulting for her now on Mighty Bell. I think you're going to really like it. Uh, it's unique and valuable. Anyway, it's a nice place to, to collect content, and then you can have conversation around the individual pieces of content. So I put up several links to Carol's work in that space, including the Vimeo link for the full version of her film, Schooling the World, which is available. I'll put the link to the Vimeo here as well. And you need a password to watch the film. And I think it's available for another five days. Does that sound right, Carol? Uh, yeah, something like that, till the 12th, seven days. Something like That's that. That's math. Oh, well, seven days if it's till the 12th. <laughs> I was an English major. I am getting some notes from people that are having trouble. Yeah, I'm getting some notes from people that they're having trouble getting into this Blackboard Collaborate room. And so um, if that was the case for you, I apologize. I don't know why that would be. But hopefully everybody gets here at some point. Carol, some of the guests or the uh, participants tonight will not have um, heard you speak before. Are you willing to give a short background again about your work? I can try. It's a, it's a little hard to explain um, the, the route that I've taken. Um, it's a bit circuitous, but uh, I um, studied education in college, but ultimately you know, I, I was going to get certified to teach, and I did some student teaching, um, but ultimately decided not to go that route. And um, I did read John Holt in college, which changed my life. And um, so uh, then I wound up through a series of things, going to graduate school in English literature for a while, and then, and then getting into the, um, the film and television business, which my husband and I did together for, for several years. Then we escaped from that and, um, and uh, um, began getting into independent documentary filmmaking. So we made the film Schooling the World. Um, in that time, we had developed a lot of um, alternative ideas about education and, and a lot of questions um, about different ways of learning. And in fact, we're raising our own kids and educating our own kids in a very alternative fashion. And so it just started to really concern us that this one-size-fits-all 
idea of schooling was being imposed uniformly around the world. And so it's really the uniformity that is the key that, that, that we're objecting to. If, if school works for some people, if they like it, that's great. But the idea that every single child on the planet has to be educated in the same exact way um, you know, became a really concerning idea to us. And, and so we wound up making the film. Um, yeah, and, uh, and, you know, have just sort of continued with, with independent projects along those lines. Now, do you not mention the Wonder Years out of modesty <laughs> or because you disassociate yourself with a, a show that was largely about kids in school? No, actually, I sort of stand by the, the portrayal of the kids in school <laughs> in the show. <laughs> Although we, we only did the first season and a half of the show. We actually did not do the later years of the show. We, we created it and did the first 19 episodes. And, um, but, uh, and, and we had a lot of fun with our, our portrayal of school and teachers. Um, so I suppose you could say it's out of modesty. I, I uh, noticed watching School in the World again that you actually have a scene from the Wonder Years, where, where the uh, what's the name of the main character who's getting picked up and pushed against the lockers? Yeah, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin, that's funny. Well, so I'm interested in um, the site, the whole idea of the movie as a change medium, and it's been prompted by my own shift in diet. I have a number of autoimmune disorders, which include vitiligo, the Michael Jackson skin disorder, where you lose pigment in your skin. I went to a doctor and she had me, uh, she actually, to her great credit, suggested I go on a vegan diet. And there's some really interesting counter motivations for a physician to recommend that kind of a treatment. But um, I did, and then uh, my, my blood work came back so incredibly positive. My risk of a future cardiovascular event dropped significantly from high risk to almost the lowest risk category. And so then I began to watch all these food movies, and there are many of them. Um, how much are you, how much do you kind of track the social movements through movies? And, and how has schooling the world been a part of that? Do you feel like it's making its impact? Yeah, I think it is. It, it continues to, you know, to wend its way around the world and turn up in surprising places all over the world. And, you know, in some influential places, I think, and and other, like, very remote places. And I'm like, how did they find out about it there? But, you know, somehow by word of mouth, these things do spread. So um, I, I do think that filmmaking is a great way to raise conversations that are not being raised in the mainstream media and um, or mainstream education, in fact. And, and there are some, there's a great website called Films for Action that just has a huge, uh, reference collection of films on all kinds of social change topics. And um, whether you agree with the content of every single film, it's a really a great way to start a conversation. And in fact, I'm sort of an advocate of people having like a documentary film club at home as an alternative to a book club because um, a lot of people I know get too tired to read the book, but you can get people together and, and watch a film in an hour, an hour and a half, and then have a really good conversation about something you might not have thought about before. So I think it's effective in that way. I love that idea, the Documentary Film Club. Um, I, it, it's occurring to me that it might be really fun. There are, obviously, there are several films on, on school and education. Um, 
School in the World is um, probably my favorite. Uh, I liked um, A Race to Nowhere. I, I didn't like Waiting for Superman. I, I wonder if it would make any sense to hold a virtual film festival on movies about school and education. You don't have to answer that now, but that would be fun to think about. I think it's a great idea, though, to just get a lot of out ideas out and just get people talking and really thinking about some of these different perspectives. So how does the movie fit into your own evolution of thinking? We're going to talk about Occupy Your Brain, this fascinating essay you wrote. Um, did thinking about schooling differently um, shift your thinking about other things? Or, or, sort, of, sort of including economic issues or political issues? Um, or did the other thinking, was that a part of a larger sort of life awareness that led in part to schooling the world? Boy, that's a that's a hard question. I mean, I think things kind of dovetail over you know many years, but um, but what I came to feel was that education was a huge blind spot among people who otherwise um, I shared many feelings with. Um, you know, people who tend to care about social justice, they tend to care about poverty, they care about the environment, they. They care about indigenous cultures. They, they care about diversity. But they tend to not see the way the institution of school is actually working counter to those goals. They tend to take it as a given that it's promoting those goals, and which, of course, in some ways it is. But in many, many deep, deep structural ways, it is working counter to those goals. I think it works counter to environmentalism by taking children out of nature and keeping them indoors all day. I think it works counter to social justice by ranking children, you know, in a kind of numeric hierarchy which, you know, it's extremely well documented, correlates with social class and income level. So, um, you know, and I, I think that it, it um, you know, works counter to the basic um, desire to raise critical thinkers and um, you know independent citizens by the fact that children are in a situation and young people, high school students and college students are in a in a situation where depending on what they say or think they can they can be graded down for this they're in a power relationship and this is what you know occupy your brain is sort of about where you take learning and you embed it in a power relationship where kids are made to feel they have to please the teacher. And so in some cases, they feel they have to censor themselves you know, consciously. But often what they do is they censor themselves kind of unconsciously, kind of intuitively. They just start saying the things that they feel will gain them approval. And so this is really counterproductive to um, the goal of, of creating a critically thinking citizenry. I'm interested in the degree to which changing thinking takes time. I had John Taylor Gatto on the show a couple of years ago, and most people in traditional schooling have not known about him, although he was well known in the homeschooling world starting about 1990 when he quit and, and began writing those books. Um, we're all going to discover things at different times. Is there something going on culturally now that's bigger than just schooling, is there a way in which the internet is promoting a, 
a willingness to question and, and see a diversity of opinions that you think is a positive force here? Well, I think, as I mentioned in the piece, that the internet has demonstrated to a lot of people in education the way children can learn in a self-directed fashion and the way um, knowledge can kind of emerge through collaborative processes as opposed to through you know, very top-down controlled um, processes. And I mean, the internet itself obviously emerged by people who had dropped out of college or and uh, and were just fooling with stuff in a garage. And um, I mean, personal computers did. And you know, the internet you know evolved out of these very collaborative processes. So so I think a lot of educators have begun to recognize that. And obviously, there's the the you know the use of Twitter and other social media in the kind of revolutionary movements that have been taking place around the world. Um, you know, one concern that I have is that there are some educators who are kind of drawing from that that therefore children should be in, on, on computers all day long because people can learn collaboratively and in a self-directed fashion and in a kind of more intuitive organic fashion um, without being on a computer. <laughs> you know, they can, they can do that outdoors. They can do it on their own, um, you know, learning completely independently. They can do it in nature. They can do it in, you know, physical groups. And so, um, you know, the notion of, of seeing a room full of children in a classroom on a computer playing games, you know, co computer games and, and, and doing self-directed projects on a computer all day long is sort of troubling to me. But so, so I wish people who are seeing that with the internet would would realize that this is a feature not of the internet, it's a feature of, of human learning and, and, and uh, communication and collaboration. A, a woman uh, posted on a blog post I did earlier that schools tend to reflect the adult world. So is this uh, Occupy Your Brain thinking about schooling, is it reflective of larger adult institutional cultures that treat adults in the same way that we're thinking about how students get treated? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that uh, the conditioning that we get to accept this very hierarchical ranking of students feeds directly into the conditioning to accept the economic hierarchy in our society. There's a sense that some people are just better than others, and we can't help that. It's just the way it is, and it's sad, but oh well, these people are smarter, so they deserve to be richer. And um, you know, the the notion that intelligence should equate to um, you know economic reward in and of itself is is problematic. If you have a, a retarded child, um, I'm sorry, a developmentally disabled child, um, that doesn't mean that you should you know, therefore, that child should live in some kind of abject poverty. People deserve to be cared for. They deserve to have a decent quality of life, um, regardless of um, how intelligent they are or how academically high performing they are. But I think there's this kind of conditioning to the idea that the, the meritocracy is some, somehow a just way of distributing material resources in our society. Also, it conditions people to accept this idea that there's nothing you can do about your situation because if people disagree with the policies of the school that they're in, there's very little hope that they have of having any impact on that policy. Uh, they, can, they can try, but there's a very low percentage chance if you have a child who's too physically energetic 
to adapt well to a sedentary classroom situation, that the school is going to be able to accommodate that in any way. So, so it sort of conditions people to this idea that, you know, things are the way they are and it just is what it is and, you know, it's being decided, you know, higher up for reasons that are out of our control and we just have to, you know, go along with that. Well, because of the interviews I've done recently and, and reading about specific topics, I'm intrigued by the degree to which it feels very clear that two things happen in school that relate to this meritocracy. One of which is that there's a degree of luck involved in did you get a teacher who understood you? Were you born in the right family? Were, you know, were there circumstances where you, someone trusted you that, that lead me to believe that, that even the existing rankings are often nonsensical? that just as easily another set of students could be considered to be, to be more high achieving than the ones who currently are. But also the huge impact of poverty. Do either of those resonate with you? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a huge element of luck, but it even goes beyond that, as I'm sure John Taylor Gatto you know, talked about. You can do poorly in school because you are too creative, too independent, too energetic have too much of a leadership personality, um, you know, you love nature too much, you are too social, you know, a lot of kids who are going to be entrepreneurs, who are going to be politicians, who are going to be, you know, forest rangers, who are going to be artists, who are going to be great innovative scientists, these people don't like school, they don't thrive there, they're very unhappy there. And, um, and you know, in many cases, they just they just disengage. In some cases, you'll have, you know, a scientifically talented person who will go ahead and get their A's. You know, but in other cases, somebody who's perfectly capable of of high academic achievement will just become so disenchanted and so disengaged that you know they they just won't do it. So, um, but then the um, the factor that we're creating this grading system that penalizes poor kids that, you know, basically one of the most, I mean, I think we need to say this to ourselves over and over and over again. One of the most consistent features of our education system is that it labels poor children as less intelligent than rich children. We have to change that. And, you know, we, Steve and I, we were talking before about you know, some of the reasons for this, but, you know, there's a lot of new data coming out about the impact of stress on cognitive abilities. I mean, anybody that has been in a stressful situation who had a relative diagnosed with cancer and then you find yourself in the grocery store unable to remember why, you know, what you came to buy, stress interferes with your ability to focus on certain types of cognitive things. So when you have children who are growing up in highly stressful environments, you know, aside from the fact that they don't have a room of their own, they don't have computers, they don't have books, they don't have, um, you know, parents who, who can help them with their math and, you know, they, they, they just have so, they have to take care of younger children, they have to take part-time jobs, they have so many disadvantages but then have the end result that, that they are labeled as less intelligent and this is, I, I think this is why we just have to stop this labeling of children. I mean, I really believe that the numbering and ranking and grading of children is one of the great moral wrongs of our time. I've told the story recently of speaking at a conference and talking about this and having a group of students who were obviously super high achieving, kind of Ivy League 
success stories come up and say, even though we were in that success category, even we didn't feel that we were smart. I think a lot of high-achieving people don't feel they're smart, actually. I mean, I think a lot of kids feel that they're hanging on by the skin of their teeth and they're not actually developing a real intellectual confidence and competence. They're scrambling for the next grade and scrambling you know, to impress the next teacher. And they're really not thinking for themselves very often. Um, so I mean, obviously, I, mean, I see some people in the chat who are saying, well, I don't think that's true. I, obviously, it's not always true. But it's true a lot of the time. And, and the, the people for whom it is true are, need to be taken seriously. And we need to, to, um, to think about them. So yeah, I mean, I think that um, real confidence comes from real mastery of you know just becoming good at something where you know you're good you're not waiting for somebody else to tell you how good you are you 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 know what you're doing and kids don't have a lot of opportunity to develop those skills yeah maybe smart was the wrong word to use but it's clear to me that we are all we are born learners and that something in schooling convinces a significant number of us that we're not good learners. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's kind of funny because to a, I'm not sure that I think it's natural to really think about learning and what kind of learner you are, what you even think about learning. I, I actually think, to me, people it more naturally just think about the thing they're trying to do. I'm trying to play the guitar or you know, I'm trying to solve this math problem or I want to, you know, I want to, you know, build this uh, doghouse or you know, I just I want to paint this picture. You know, there's something that you're trying to do and you ha you know, what you really want to have is a sense of you know, how close you're getting it to how close you're getting to doing it the way it needs to be done as opposed to again like you know am i learning and am i going to get a good grade for this all of which really you know takes you away from the the activity itself so you talk i i listened to a couple of things you did online and um you talked and you said here as well tonight i think about you know about good people people you care about who who want to be doing good things for students and learners um, and yet we have this school system and arguably we have um, in incredibly uh, what appear to be erroneous activities taking place with regard to the financial community. We have uh, fascinatingly, um, I'm going to say these things carefully, we have fascinating deception associated with a global um, participation or, or instigating um, things globally that turn into wars. How much of this is conscious deception and how much of it is uh, innocent influence? I really thought about this a lot with the food piece because clearly a lot of the things that have come out of the USDA that relate to health have actually hurt the health of those who follow them. So is, is this all? How do you how do you figure out the balance between innocent influence and uh, conscious deception? 
Well, you know, unless you're in the back room, I think it's very hard to know. You have to sort of follow the money and see where the motivations lie. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not really, um, you know, I think that our, our system of education, education has sort of a higher percentage of people who I think are genuinely idealistic um, than some industries. But um, the, the question is, how do those ideals get funneled? And so you have this kind of perfect storm that goes on of, of conflicting positive and negative agendas that sort of have come together to give us, you know, the institutional features that we have. And, um, you know, I certainly think with the whole big move for all the standardized testing, there was a huge financial motive from, uh, you know, um, McGraw-Hill and the other companies that, that make the standardized tests. I think that's a gravy train for those guys. And um, that if they can get more kids taking more tests, there's, there's a ton of money in that. And so, you know, I think there's a real, um, you know, but, but I think oftentimes people that promote things like that, um, rather than sort of rubbing their palms together in a Machiavellian way and saying, ha, 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 here's how we'll fool the population, they actually convince themselves that it's the right thing to do. And um, I, a lot of the, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a few people rubbing their hands together and saying, ha, 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 but, but, uh, but, but a lot of people, you know, persuade themselves that, that what they're doing or what they have done is, is necessary and good. You know, both because if you've done something for years, you don't want to believe that it was a mistake. And, and if, you, if you want to do something for whatever reason, even if it's um, financial, you know, you, you convince yourself that, that, that you're doing it out of virtue rather than, um, than out of greed. So, you know, it, it's complicated how <laughs> we get the world that we get. And obviously, I think there's a lot that ordinary people don't, don't have access to. But there is a little bit of good investigative reporting about it. So you quote in one piece Noam Chomsky. And he's somebody I've read a fair amount of recently. And it feels as though there is this sort of bizarre catch-22 that the, the way in which we're schooled leads us to accept a relationship with corporations that is, that is not um, allowing of sort of intellectual freedom, but requires that we kind of accept this notion we're going to conform to the interests of the company. Is there a connection, do you think, between that non-rubbing hands together attitude, the attitude of, well, this is just what I'm supposed to be doing, and so I'm going to convince myself it's good, and having been brought up in a pattern that was very similar to that? Sure. I, I think we're just really, we're really conditioned to it. And, and the, the kids that sort of, I mean, I think you just have to look at what happens to the kids who, who sort of resist. Um, so the, you know, the, the incentives to, you know, for children to just go along to get along um, and, and just sort of adapt to the system and, and give it what it wants are, are intense. And the penalty that the kids who resist it pay is very, very high. So, um, you know, including being, being drugged. So kids continue to just beat their head against that brick wall. They continue to just, you know, really hurt themselves as, as 
some way to kind of fight back against that level of control, it's, it's really an excessive level of control of one, one human being over another. To, to take another human being and say, you have to sit here, and here's what you have to think about, and here's where you have to direct your eyes, and you know, here's when you get to pick up your pencil, and here's when you have to put it down. I mean, it is such an excruciating level of, of physical control that is often exercised that, um, you know, I think children really just can't adapt well to it. They, we're not sort of evolved to be um, to be subject to that level of control. And some kids can adapt better than others, but but the ones who can't adapt, they really are made to suffer for it. And oh, can I just you say one other thing? I saw in the chat. Your brain. I, I oh, think. Please. Oh, there, there was something, I think somebody was misunderstanding that I was saying the idea of intellectual confidence or mastery meant that you don't have questions or you can't admit that you're, you're wrong or you might be mistaken, which is not at all what I mean. I mean, I think if, you, if you're intellectually confident, you will admit when you don't know something and you will ask questions and you will seek information. I think it's when you're, um, when you're fo too focused on just getting the right answer and, and getting a score and a grade that, that kids get into sort of trying to fake being smarter than they are. Um, and so I think that, that, that the, real, the real mastery leads to people that are very open to new ideas and to admitting when they're, they're wrong or uncertain about something. Robert's asking in the chat if you have children. You obviously do because you mentioned you've done um, some non-traditional schooling. Um, Robert, if you feel like you want to drill down on that path, feel free to ask in the chat. So Carol, in the essay, Occupy Your Brain, you talk about the role of children in non-modernized societies. And that was a chapter I went sort of immediately to in the um, new Jared Diamond book. Right? What, what, uh, is there something instructive for us in how children are integrated into societies where there isn't sort of formal schooling? Yeah, there is. You know, there have been some um, criticisms of some of the other chapters of the Jared Diamond book, which I won't get into. But um, I think the the section on children has some good points in it. Um, there's another book um, called Equality in the Forest, I think, which um, somebody did a sort of meta study of hunter-gatherer societies around the world. And it's kind of an interesting thing because people see the, the competitiveness and the, the sort of will to dominance and control you know, in our fellow humans. And they, they make kind of Darwinian arguments that that's just sort of the way we are. But the interesting thing is that if you, if you survey hunter-gatherer societies around the world, what you find is that they are intensely, intensely egalitarian. And this is like nearly universal among people that have tried to kind of tally, tally up the data. So there is a, an ethic that the individual is entitled to autonomy and that no one should try to control another person. And this is, um, this is sort of exercised by what this author, Christopher Beam, I'm not sure exactly how to say his name, it's B-O-E-H-M, um, calls reverse dominance hierarchy where um, rather than it being that these people are innocent angels who, who have no will to dominance or, or competition, what it is is that they, they, they share a social ethic of avoiding dominance. And so the people who are kind of the rank and file, if someone tries to emerge and control them all, they will they will sanction that socially. So 
with ridicule or making fun of them. And, you know, you see this in children in school, interestingly, because children, you know, young children tend not to like, you know, the teacher's pet. They have many ways that they subvert um, the, the structures that are trying to rank them into hierarchies. Um, even cheating is, is really often a way that children are, you know, what our teachers said in the olden days, they're helping their neighbors. You know, they're not cheating for personal gain often. Um, you know, some older kids are, but younger kids are often cheating as a way of helping their neighbors. They're trying to equalize this kind of stacked competition that they are being put in by adults. And so um, what you see in, in kids is this real impulse to maintain that autonomy and to, and to avoid that kind of competitive ranking, which, which they will try to achieve in all kinds of different ways and, you know, the way they try to subvert the authority structure of the school in, you know, a million, a million ways that we're all familiar with. But, you know, the, the inattention and the forgetting and the things that are considered to be symptoms of ADHD to me are what people do when they're resisting control. So, um, yeah, I think that, that what the takeaway from all of this is that um, to be this controlled and to be, you know, ranked in this way is not necessarily natural to our species. And, and there's a lot of research that's coming out now about just sort of looking at, you know, the natural his history of human beings as a species and what are we evolutionarily um, evolved to accept and how are we meant to relate to one another and learn. And so one of the things that they're learning is that free play, often rough and tumble physical play, is an important part of neurological development and is an important part of uh, social development and when you hold kids still all day and you don't allow them to engage in free play, you know, this is related to the, um, the things that we then label ADHD. So do you want to explore with us for a minute how you think this has happened? I know that you quoted from a book in one talk about the right brain, left brain sort of historical shift and the impacts of a way of thinking that was that's that's uh, very analytical and ranking ordered. Yeah, I mean that there's a this book. It's called um, The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, and it's really really fascinating. Um, and he has uh, research that has been done about um, the way that the two hemispheres of the brain functions. I think didn't Daniel Pink also do a kind of popularized talk about this? I'm not sure, but. Um, in any case, yeah, the idea is that the left brain is, is very analytical, it, it's, it's sort of uh, quantitative, um, and it, it really likes to measure and count things, and it's really sort of evolved, it's the part of our brain that has evolved to deal with non-living things. It sort of prefers non-living things. They've, they've done this, um, they've done these research studies where they have some chemical way that they can actually shut down one hemisphere of the brain at, at a time and see how the same person responds to um, responds to situations first with the left side of their brain and then the right side of their brain. So um, the the left brain is very systematic in its thinking, and but the interesting thing is it is impervious to sort of real life information coming from the outside. So once it forms a theory, the left brain forms a theory. 
you know, it, it cannot see outside of its own theory to what is actually happening. So, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the left brain doesn't see when the emperor has no clothes, and the right brain is the part that does see that because the right brain is sort of grounded in, in sensation and experience and compassion and relationship and, you know, is more intuitive and is more just sort of keyed into the world around it. So the, the problem, I think, is that, I mean, there is this kind of thing where we start to teach what we can measure because we love to measure what children, you know, learn, and you really can't measure what is in another person's brain. So if measurement becomes the imperative, then you begin to focus increasingly on what can be measured. You know, a lot of people have remarked on that. So, um, but, but the thing to me that I think is even more um, troubling is that, and this is another thing that Chomsky says, you know, you can't, like, Physical scientists, people who do chemistry, they can't construct a theory and then maintain that theory in the face of contrary evidence. You know, you have to abide by the laws of, you know, physics and chemistry. And, and, but you can, in the social sciences and in education, you can construct a theory. And no matter how much evidence there is to the contrary, you know, you can just keep going with the same theory. And so, you know, I think that, um, that's why I, I think we need to go to a different way of thinking about children. And an example of this really would be that we are drugging, you know, 15% of our boys for ADHD. And, you know, this is not rocket science. Some children are too high energy to sit still all day. We have to find ways for them to learn that does not require them to sit still so much. You know, they're not, there's nothing, there's a small, tiny percentage of children who may have some actual type of neurological damage, but a lot of these children, they have strong personalities, they have high energy, they're kind of alpha dogs, they're, you know, and, and any animal trainer knows that you cannot train an animal that is not getting enough exercise. So, you know, we are not letting our children move their bodies enough, and it's making them insane. And the fact that we don't see this when it's as plain as the nose in front of our face and we don't respond to it promptly is, um, I think, evidence of just how far afield we've really gotten as a society. It's going to be fun in, in a minute or two to sort of shift this conversation toward what we can do. But before we do so, I want to ask you about the impact of family. There was recently a Bill of Rights and Principles for Learners in the Digital Age that came out. A small group of people were invited to Palo Alto to create this document. And I did a podcast with Audrey Waters on this because it was really interesting to look at this document and see um, that they specifically said learning begins on the playground and, and never once mentioned family. And I said, this is sort of stunning to me. How could you create a document on learning and not mention the family? And why would you think that learning starts on the playground rather than from the moment of birth? Do you have thoughts about family? Well, I do. Um, I think it is extremely unfortunate that we have a situation where the teachers' unions um, and the homeschooling community are being um, pitted against one another. And obviously this is not true of all teachers and, and 
there are arenas where there's really good communication going on now between teachers and um, homeschoolers and unschoolers um, because you know homeschoolers and unschoolers are doing you know great experimentation with learning. But yeah, obviously it begins in the family. But um, you know if you if you look at the NEA resolutions, which they just reaffirmed again in 2013, it says that. Um, Home education cannot provide, you know, an adequate education for a child. And anyone who home educates should be a certified teacher, and they should follow the state-prescribed curriculum and testing um, testing program. So, why, after all this time, when it's really abundantly clear that that homeschooling works well for a lot of people, um, the NEA feels the need to continue to condemn it and 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 pit these two groups against one another is really problematic. And and so obviously there's teachers in the schools that really understand how important the family is and families that appreciate the teachers and they're really working well together and then there are these other you know sort of elements in the community that um, are just playing a, a blame game and a kind of a tug of war power game over who gets to control the children so yeah there's a real um, you know it, it's kind of crazy. Well there is this sort of pervasive sense that that if we don't step in, there are kids whose parents aren't going to care for them. And that's a really hard argument, right? But, but you make the point in the essay that if, if we don't think parents are capable of raising their kids or helping their young children develop, why would we think they're capable of making decisions in a democracy? How do you get out of that dilemma of people believing that parents aren't capable? And is it, does it become self-fulfilling? Well, I, I think it does become self-fulfilling to some extent because, again, you have this blame game and mutual finger pointing where parents just hand their children over to the school and say, here, you educate them. And, um, you know, and then the teachers say, well, you know, if you don't, you know, if you don't have a good environment at home and good discipline at home and blah, 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 you know, I'm really handicapped in what I can do with your kids. And so, um, again, whoever's going to be working with children, they need to work together and they need to appreciate each other's contributions. So, um, so I do actually think the, the, this, this sense that the child belongs to the school does lead to some parents abdicating um, some of their responsibility. Um, but um, wait, what was the other part of your question? Well, how do you answer the question, uh, there are going to be children whose parents are not very good parents and it really reduces the potential of those children to accomplish things of worth and value in their own right. lives. Right. Well, I mean, there's sort of a saying in the legal profession, which is that hard cases make bad law. You can't legislate something for an entire society based on a minority of what a minority of irresponsible people are going to do. You can't infringe on you know the freedom of all of society because a minority of people are not going to handle that freedom well. So you know, I just think there are um, child abuse and neglect laws on the book. There are agencies for for dealing with that, um, which are you know often have a lot of problems themselves. But um, there are kids who get abused at home, and there are kids who get abused at school. So child abuse, I think, just needs to be seen as um, a problem, and I think. To me, in my experience, the best solution to child abuse 
is to rebuild a sense of community, is to have neighbors know each other, is to have extended family and aunts and uncles living closer together. And that's obviously a long-range goal, but I do have lived for the last, you know, 11 years in a very small town, and, you know, we have our, um, our share of families with, you know, alcoholism and substance abuse and, and you know, um, domestic problems. And what you do see is that the kids who are coming from these families, they have other places to go. They have other families that will take them in. Everybody kind of knows what's going on. And there aren't as many secrets. And, you know, so it, it doesn't have to only happen through the institution of school that, that someone else, um, that someone else has an eye on the kids. And, I mean, in fact, I mean, I can give you a really personal example of this because when I was in high school, um, I, was an I was really anorexic for a while, but none of my teachers knew me well enough. They hadn't known me the year before. They didn't realize that <laughs> I didn't used to be quite that small. Um, and, um, you know, other kids that I knew had serious drug problems, but their teachers you know, at a large public high school, their teachers didn't know them well enough to know that they weren't always like that. They couldn't necessarily tell the difference between this kid who was smoking PCP and, you know, what that kid was normally like, that actually this was a very bright, alert person normally. <laughs> so, you know, in, in most public high schools right now, there really isn't enough um, close relationship that teachers are too overburdened with too many students. It's not their fault. It's just the way the institution works. It's actually not at all a good, um, a good structure for catching um, problems with children. And, you know, so in my case, the person that noticed that I had an eating problem was my aunt. You know, she came to visit. She came to our house. She said, why is Carol getting smaller? So, um, you know, because somehow parents can sometimes, I guess, be in denial about that. So in any case, I, I, I do think that the real safety of children comes from real networks of close personal relationships in a, in a community and extended family of people who know them, have known them their whole childhood and care about them and are involved in their lives. And there is no substitute for trying to rebuild that. We really need to try to rebuild that in our society. So let's talk about the rebuilding. Homeschooling is very much a kind of a one-to-one -one growth a relationship. Uh, someone's doing it, they, they talk to their friends, they kind of help them get some comfort, they maybe join a small homeschooling group. Uh, this, Dale Doherty, the creator of um, Make Magazine, talks about the maker movement sort of growing in the same way in the way that uh, marathon running has grown. Right? There's no superstructure, no organization from the top creating the growth. It's the one-to-one -one connecting and communities that get built at the grassroots level. There, um, that kind of growth, though, typically only gets to a certain percentage of the population. Is, is this a serious enough issue, education? Um, and is the impact you know, negative enough for so many kids that it should be like a civil rights movement? Do we need sort of a stronger voice on this? Well, I personally believe that it is a moral issue similar to the civil rights movement. I think this, this ranking and grading of children is, um, is morally wrong. It, it does damage to them that is absolutely equivalent to child abuse. So if you're going to give a kid C's and D's, you might as well be just standing in front of them shouting, you are stupid and worthless and you will never amount to anything in life. So it, it has exactly the same impact on people as 
protracted child abuse, verbal abuse. So, um, and I do also think that the lack of control that uh, the people have over their children's education, the lack of control that parents have, that teachers have, and that children have is a civil rights issue and we should stop putting up with it. But just as a kind of, I, I do think that the one-to-one -one thing um, is sometimes the way it has to work at certain periods of history, but just two things to think about. One is that um, Chris Hedges, who was a war correspondent who was in Czechos the old uh, communist Czechoslovakia before the communist government uh, went down, said that you know six months before that government collapsed, that whole situation seemed so locked down you never thought it would change. It just seemed that there was no room for change. And then six months later, it was gone, and they were living in a you know a, a new democracy. So um, not all their problems were solved, but you know at least there was an increase in freedom. And I think in the same way that this, this structure that we have is so anti-life, it has good things in it, but it is so fundamentally anti-life that it could collapse of its own weight quite, quite rapidly and people could suddenly realize that it's kind of a crazy thing that we're doing to ourselves. And so my kind of thought experiment is if you took your local public school and you removed that uh, education is compulsory, and you removed the state-mandated curriculum, and you removed the state control over individual teachers, um, and you removed um, compulsory grading. Kids could ask for whatever kind of feedback they want, but grading would not be a standard compulsory thing, and it would certainly not be public. What you would have pretty quickly, and if this would cost no money, what you would have is a community center. And things would start, nothing would need to change right away. People probably would be uncomfortable with radical change and they would just kind of keep doing what they're doing for a while. But then it could begin to evolve. It could become a living system and people would start buzzing and they would start talking about what they really want and what they really need and what's working for them and what's not working for them. And people could make proposals and a group of people could say, we would like to have a Waldorf style kindergarten or kindergarten and start working with the kindergarten teacher to see if they could, you know, make some changes in that direction. And a group of kids could say, we want to, you know, design software and, um, and you know, have two hours a day that we sit around and, and, and work on software design. And because they wouldn't have a mandated curriculum, they would be able to take that time to do that if they so chose. So I don't think that teachers need to be so threatened about that kind of an idea. You could have teachers who would be teaching, you know, fewer classes in the standard subjects and more classes in creative writing and intensive science labs and, you know, uh, workshops of all kinds and discussion groups of all kinds. So it would become kind of a hybrid of a local community center, rec center, kind of more like a community college combined with a rec center. And here you have this great facility with swimming pool and playing fields and, you know, art rooms and science labs and, and discussion rooms and a theater and an auditorium and the community could be deciding what they want to do with it. And, and you could bring adults into the institution where adults could be taking classes there and teenagers and adults could do a creative workshop, you know, a creative writing workshop together. Um, and, you know, all kinds of things could begin to happen and it could be different in different communities. It could be, you know, locally, locally tailored. So, you know, would there still be some problems? Yes, but you can't judge a, an innovation 
based on the idea that it solves every problem because our current you know, situation doesn't solve every problem. So there's always going to be problems to solve, but I, I actually think we could bring schools back to life, teachers could be valued, teachers could be creative and, and valued as professionals again, parents could have more freedom, kids could have more freedom, and, um, and we could really have like a vital basis for a community to share. So that would be one idea. So I think many of us listening love that vision. I think the difficulty is how would you actually help that to happen? Meaning we've watched a president who even has talked about his own children being in an environment which wasn't test driven, but has pursued a policy of increased centralized control. And sort of the incredible pushback that the power structure gives. Kev, I mean, I'm, we're about to close here, but the, how would this actually take place? Would a community have to say, we're taking our school over, we're going to occupy the school? Because I'm not sure that anybody in power would actually say we're going to do this as an experiment. Nobody in power ever does anything as an experiment, I think. So yeah, I mean, I think like the current opt-out movement on testing is very positive. I think the whole movement that has risen up around um, Race to Nowhere is very positive. And I think that, I, I think that as, um, as I say in the piece, Occupy Your Brain, I think there is a people need to get together in communities and begin talking about what they really want and and just start to think about the fact that they deserve to have what they want um, and uh, and and looking for different ways to form a movement as you said but first you have to believe that you're entitled to have a say in these things and and you know that I don't know I think we just got to spread the ideas by, by communication but certain things will catch fire when it's when, when it's their time and and with the women's movement and the civil rights movement, you see how things hover for a very long time, and it seems like nothing is ever going to happen, and then all of a sudden it does. So I think that could really happen here. Okay, words of optimism from Carol Black. Carol, love talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this again. Thanks for having me back. Can't wait to continue the conversation. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, Thursday, Laura Grace Weldon on free range learning. Lots more coming up. Hope you'll join us. Thanks to Carol. Thanks to all of you. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Bye now. <laughs>